straight up, no question, always broadside. I call it controlled. It's always a controlled broadside, and it's something that's very, very achievable with the small line, the shorter line systems. I'm able to, like I do this tip-out technique when she, once the fly is on the inside where most guys are leading with the rod and the fly has lost all of its animation. It's just literally sinking to the bottom, and you're dragging the thing to the inside to try to cover the inside lies. That was Jerry French telling us how he prefers to swing the fly. We get the intruder story directly from the man himself today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. I'm excited to share a second podcast that... uh, could be a huge help for you if you have a fly fishing business and want to improve your online influence head over to outdoorsonline.co and listen to the show right now and if you get a chance it'd be great if you could share it with uh, one other person that you know who has a business jerry french is on the show today to give us the full story of how the intruder revolution came to be we hear how uh, the intruder drove the spay line evolution what makes the intruder platform unique and what length is perfect for the fly Jerry also tells us a funny story about how early on, Jerry and the boys had their intruders stolen multiple times right off their fly rods. A quick word from our sponsor, GotFishing.com is your trusted source of information with access to the world's best fishing trips. You'll never pay a dime extra for the trip you book, and in many cases, less than advertised. Find out where GotFishing could take you by heading over to GotFishing.com today. That's G-O-T Fishing.com, or reach them by phone at 208 208- Six three zero three three seven three. Gotfishing.com, the easiest place to start your next fishing adventure. So without further ado, here's Jerry French from jerryfrenchflyfishing.com. How's it going, Jerry? I'm very good. How are you, Dave? Great, great. Well, I'm as well as we could be, uh, you know, the current situation, we're still at the, the lockdown. So uh, yeah. this, this will probably publish in a, a month or two. So hopefully by that time, we'll all be out fishing and on the rivers again. But um, yeah, how, how are you hanging in there? I'm, I'm hanging in there. I, you know, I really want to fish. I've tied enough flies and um, I'm ready to get out and, you know, shoot some guns and swing some flies. So <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> it's, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, well, sure. We're, we're going to jump in today to, you know, of course, the intruder and, and sk- the Skagit and, and everything that you've, you're known for, you know, your name's a pretty big name out there. Excellent. Um, before we get into all that, can you just talk about how you first got into a fly fishing and how you brought that into where you are today? Yeah, sure. No problem. The, uh, well, I was, I had moved from, my mom is terminally ill and we lived like the wilderness family in Alaska and we lived way off the grid. And when my mom had to move closer to the hospitals, we moved to Arlington, Washington, and they took away all my guns and my mom got me a slingshot (laughs) and she went to Western auto and she bought me a wrist rocket. What a foolish maneuver, right? You know? Yeah, seriously. And so, but, um, she bought me the, the slingshot and she bought me a literally, I think it was a Shakespeare starter kit, like a fly fishing starter kit at Western auto. Huh. And, and so she brings this thing home and I'm like, well, this is really cool, you know, cause I was used to fishing for really nice bows and stuff. It was right around Houston, Alaska is where we lived. So I fished a lot on the little Susitna and, um, 
big, big kings and lots of big rainbows. And so, you know, the fly fishing thing really intrigued me. And then, you know, then once I started fly fishing, I realized the lineage that I lived between and the people that were, you know, on the Stillaguamish and I became really good friends with Walt Johnson and, you know, fishing on the Skagit, I rubbed shoulders with, you know, Harry Lemire and all those guys. And then closer to my generation, there was Ed Ward and Deck Hogan and Scott O'Donnell, you know? And so it was like those guys, there was this, you know, this huge influence of, you know, real prestige on the river. And so I just, you know, I, I, I stayed super quiet and we, you know, we had this, I had this thing where it was like, you earn what you learn kind of deal. You know, we didn't, I didn't fish other people's water. I just snuck onto the river quietly. And I, I, you know, I, I took my lumps like everybody else did in the sport, just kind of wading my way through it with a single hand rod. And then when the two handed rod came into the game, it, it really, it really fired up the whole angle. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't as intrigued by casting far as I was about fishing better. You know, that was really the beginning of the whole thing. And, you know, I, once I was bit, that was the end of it. And then, you know, a few years later, it was probably five or six years later, Ed, I met Ed Ward, became good friends with Jack Hogan, and then met Ed Ward. What, what year was that, Jerry? What year are you talking here now when you met, um, first met it Ed? Was, I think, it, it honestly, it was the early 90s. And, yeah. and I'm not really good at dates sure. because everything kind of smashes <laughs> together. But it really, yeah. it's like, you know, if you ask me when Doug and I first started this business, I'd be like, uh, you know, uh, and, and I asked that, I asked that only because I just had George Cook on recently and he, he was breaking down kind of the Northwest Spay history. And I just wanted to put you, plug you in there because we, we talked, your name came up, but we didn't dig into a lot on the intruder. So I just wanted to make, to plug that real quick. Yeah, no problem. It was, it was. It was, I would say it was, you know, the early nineties, maybe as late as 95. It feels earlier than that. Cause I was only out of high school. I graduated in 84. Um, uh, you know, I've only been out of high school a few years and I was, you know, I'd basically become a full blown steelhead bum. And then I met deck. I'm, you know, I knew of deck and Ed long before I actually became friends with Ed. You know, I'd see them on the river, we'd pass in the woods, things like that, you know. But once I became friends with Ed, then this whole Pandora's box opened up, you know, and that was, it was, it was pretty much an endless pursuit. You know, um, Scott Howell was part of our little crew and then one other buddy who just kind of vanished, but still fishes very hard. I just never see him again, Tucker English. And so that group of guys was, that was the nucleus of the intruder and all the evolutions that we were. And it was, it was no one person, you know, Ed, Ed is this brilliant man. And so, you know, and so is Scott. And so is, you know, Tucker and Tucker was this beautiful caster and great fly tire. And Scott was just this terminator fish angler with lots of ideas and skills. And, you know, once you put us all together, the evolution of the ideas and concepts were, they were very rapid. You know, it was like make a new line every night, tie a new fly. You know, it just went on and on and on. And there were all these heads hyper-focused on the same outcome. You come up with some pretty cool stuff really quickly. So, you know, that was, that was really where it went, but I would say, you know, the early nineties, you know, early to mid nineties, we all kind of gelled and then carried on from there. Okay, cool. And can you maybe take us back to the, I don't know, wherever you want to start with the very beginning of the intruder idea. And then, and I'm not sure where you guys, the lines and the the different lines, was that all in the same uh, part of, you know, the, the evolution? 
Yeah, absolutely. One drove the other. And believe it or not, the fly drove all the fly design or fly line design because, right, there were no lines for casting what it was we were creating. And the creations were the creation, just starting with the creation. The idea behind the, the, the intruder was, is that because we live on the coast and because we have this affliction and love for these coastal rivers and super bright steelhead that just came in off the tide kind of thing. And so we were trying to create this conditioned response. And I was, you know, there was, pardon the expression, but there were all these fart sniffers that would just sit on the beach and just sit there and geek out on their (laughs) boxes and make no mistake. I geeked out on my box. I started tying, you know, um, spay flies and all the classic stuff and, and, you know, did to give credit where credit's due all of that classic information and passion for classic flies and, and spay flies is what drove the intruder right? We all stuck within that same love of long wiggly hackles like there were on Sid's spay flies, you know, and so on. And so, you know, if you look at it, it's like the intruder's just a mega version of these classic spays, but in a way that was very, very castable. And we started to get into, I mean, imagine trying to use a double taper and cast a six and a half inch or even five inch intruder, you know, and even if it had a single clean front station and a single clean back station, it was still a nightmare to cast these things. And so the evolution of the, you know, the fly lines was, it was just, it was very, very, it was simultaneous for sure. You know, it was like we were, and the short rod, the short rod became a really big part of our game. We were always hunting for shorter rods. You know, it gave us, the way we looked at it is we looked at it like special forces fishing. You know, you were, we were fishing the high bank sections and off the bars. We were, we were where the plugger guys were, you know, that we were with the big rocks on the high banks stuck in the bushes and the big rods didn't work there. And so you know, the evolution of the shorter rods, shorter lines, and these bigger, wigglier flies were all basically simultaneous. That's cool. And what was a short rod back then? What would you consider when you guys first were in oh, that phase? Oh, it was like the greeny, you know, 13.6 was considered short. And, and, think, and, you know, I credit George Cook because during the early days, George Cook sent us a quiver of these 11-foot rods that were basically marketed in Europe for fishing the locks, drifting the locks. And they were all 11 feet long, hmm. and they were... I think he sent four of each initially. There was a six weight, a seven weight, and an eight weight, and they were all 11 feet long. And I don't remember what graphite series they were, but they were pretty fast. And either way, what we ended up doing is we we were already in the cutting up, you know, um, 12 weight, 13 weight mm-hmm. um, double tapers and making these shooting heads out of it. <clears throat> and it turned into this, okay, let's, let's add a foot to this 11 footer and make it a 12 foot seven weight. And then let's make this a 12 foot, six inch eight weight, you know, and we were taking other broken rods and just adding to the butt sections and then building the handles over them. (laughs) And then, so, and then taping the reels to them, of course, so you could find this ideal location for the reel. And I still have one of those rods, but it's made into a bait caster. And unfortunately all the others, some, most of them got stolen. And then the ones I actually still had got broken. So it was kind of a, you know, kind of as it goes, right? Yeah. The thing you really love, just snap, can't get that again. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, that's where that ended up. Cool. But, you know, that it certainly was a fly driving the lines for sure and the technology. So. It, was, it was. Okay. And 
And so, you know, it's funny because you mentioned that the, the short or, you know, shorter rods and stuff. And I think of my experience up and first experience in the Skeena, you know, it was kind of the same oh, yeah. thing. I mean, I picked that up and I remember I was on these tight banks and because I brought a spade rod, I had never really used one before. I was able to fish some great water and, and my buddies who didn't have, right, they had the single headed rods, they weren't able to get out there. So it was this crazy thing. But I, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, hearing a story about you guys back in the, in the Ford, um, Explorer, right? Three of you packed in there. Could you, yep, could you yep. take us to that time? Cause it reminds me of our story. Like we, we called it the, like, uh, 10 days of stinky guys on the river because we floated the babine and stuff. But you know, what was that like? Take, take <laughs> us to that boat where you guys, cause you were, this is when you were cutting lines and developing and, and, and all sleep in the back of a car. What, what were you doing back then? Well, we were guiding in Alaska and we would, you know, we'd be tying flies all summer long and talking trash about, you know, what was going to go down when we got home and we'd get home and my birthday was close to that. And initially we would wait around until September 28th, like right after my birthday. And then we would hit the road and we'd pass the Thompson. That was a hard thing to do. And then just blaze straight up. And, you know, initially we went to the Maurice we'd we'd end up there because it was closest and we'd driven a long ways and you know we'd load up the ford explorer and you know eventually that turned into bringing a boat with us because we were you know we were foot warriors for a long time and then we'd bring the drift boat and then the drift boat eventually turned into a jet boat oh really and the camping kit yeah the camping kit got a little bit more pimp what what was the ford what what, before i just want to paint the picture what, what year was the ford the Ford was, I think it was like an 89, maybe, you know, it was like, it was first year, second year, the, the vehicle came out. I got one. I was like, that's going to be a great fishing vehicle, you know? And all I looked at is how much stuff I could put inside of it. Not really the fact that it set six inches off the ground, you know? <laughs> and so the, we, you know, pick up Scott and Ed and I would trek up, load up and then head up there. And, you know, Scott, Scott was going to college at the time. And so what he would do is he, he was his, his frugalness and his commitment to that was literally mind boggling. I mean, he would, we'd be driving from spot to spot and Scott would be eating raw potatoes and putting Johnny seasoning salt on them. Oh my gosh. And eating tuna, no joke, no joke. And you can only imagine the gas that man was capable of. Oh my God. Uh, right bro it was it was it was epic and i don't use that word very often but it truly was he would he would like leave you know like a scum on the windows after a night of sleeping in the car and we slept in the back of the explorer head to foot like sardines and it would be like you know ed on one window scott in the middle and me on the other window and it was you'd wake up in the morning and we all smelled so bad it was like a garbage can I mean, it was literally like we were sleeping in a garbage can and Scott had this old bag, this old army sleeping bag. It kept him really warm. And, you know, he had to warm after running around with no toes on his boots all day and so on. You know, he was the first guy out of the truck and the last guy back every day. But the whole Explorer thing kind of, I mean, the thing got stuck so many times that eventually I just ended up getting a Toyota pickup and, you know, tricking that thing out from top to bottom to be able to accommodate, you know, me and Ed. Cause Scott was kind of on his own, on his own program. That's awesome. And then, and then, so that's pretty cool. Then you, the evolution then, so drift boat and then sled. So where were you guys taking that sled out there? I, I haven't really been on the bulkly. Oh, on the bulkly. Yeah, that's right. The bulkly. Yeah. The bulkly became, the bulkly became our love. I mean, it was, you know, the Skeena, whenever the Skeena was fishable, but the bulkly was 
that was our place. Yeah. You know, and especially the whole Susquatch stretch, Trout Creek, Trout Creek, and the Susquehanna area. They would, you know, we'd camp at the Susquehanna Launch quite often, and then just put the jet boat in there and run up river. We also had these little blue cataracts. Um, long before the wee boats were really popular, and those things were, you know, super, super capable. They were built by Wolfcraft, and mm. we turned them into. They were an adjustable boat that you could either make into a kayak, a pontoon kayak. Or it could be this very low-seated, very whitewater-capable hmm. um, small kayak at nine foot and oh, wow. ten inches was a pontoon length. So it was, it was uh, real, real formidable. And we'd use those for real stealthy missions. And we floated in those as much as we did anything else, honestly. As long as we had a place to drop it off the high bank, that yep. was the cool part. It could be put in and taken out anywhere. So it was exactly you know you could go that anywhere. was our kid for sure. But yeah, the exp- the exploder is what we called that. The exploder, yeah. <laughs> the exploder, yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Um, so yeah, and and let's go back to the the intruder because I want to maybe start off just a little bit on that. And you know, there's probably some people that maybe don't know exactly the you know the definition of the intruder. But can you just talk about describe to some, a newbie what what the intruder is and what what defines an intruder? Okay. the The name came from a very simple session on the river actually testing a fly in alaska that walked down and you know stuck it in the water and it was like the super wiggly thing and if anybody remembers the series lost in space there was a character or a feature on the show called robbie the robot Mm -hmm. and he would he would just do this intruder alert thing and swing his arms around okay Uh and so and and i was always cracking that up as much as i could crack up anybody and and I did that. And he, we looked at each other and we were like, well, there's the name, you know, we're just going to yeah. call this platform just that a platform. There is no pattern. You know, it's a platform because we tied a variety of types throughout the years. And you know, that if I've been asked that question a lot and the definition of that really is, you know, a large fly tied as sparse as possible and if you were to give it a specific intruder name it would have to be two stations it's not it's not a rabbit strip fly it's an ostrich fly you know and that's where it came from you know and like Mm -hmm. my dirty hoe the dirty hoe is just an evolution of that idea because of my love for string leeches Mm -hmm. and it has a, a fairly robust shoulder front hackle and which allows it can't be too robust because it'll actually stifle the swim and pull the tackle tips in behind the and behind the shoulder. But nevertheless, the the intruder was it was two very trim stations, as trim as we could tie them, and a long, beautiful section in the middle. And that beautiful section in the middle originally was always tinsel, and there might be a little bit of Palmer over that tinsel. But the reason for that was we were using polar bear and seal hair almost exclusively then. And so it created this very illuminated interior part of the fly. So what we were trying to do was to create a conditioned response from the fish. And we know for a fact that our steelhead eat big wiggly flies. And there are, you know, you get into this inner desert area or places where they've traveled, you know, six, 800 miles or further, they will eat smaller stuff, but they didn't go from small to adult by eating you know, green hindlanders, they got that way by eating big wigglies. And so those big wigglies were, we were just trying to emulate that, you know, and, and, you know, and it's not, I'm not talking any trash about beautiful flies and tying beautiful flies and how great it feels to make those flies. But for us, it was about 
improving our our performance and productivity period it was a super selfish pursuit of just you know catch more fish see yeah. how big a fly they'll actually eat you know can i cast this damn thing and how long can i and that evolved the fly lines you know so the intruder that was a it was a platform mm-hmm. period it was tied on a shank um initially they were they were all tied on shanks they were cut shanks with a loop in the back with the mono rig through and then the hook and a piece of speaker wire insulation that's exactly how the thing was built and eventually there's now you know it's like my junction tubing my ultra rig tubing you know after years of doug researching tubings for me i actually found the ideal junction tubing you know and it fits on the backs of the shanks perfectly and it stays secure hook up or down however you pursue and then when you hook a fish it pops loose you know and and the more elastic version of that turned into the ultra rig kit you know because i was i was having problems with breaking wire in alaska and those things evolved into the ultra rig kit you know so mm-hmm. it was you know it's just like this natural evolution it's it's necessity you know and, and that's where everything came from and if if there was some young guy who wanted to tie an intruder, you know, there's a billion videos and books out yeah. there now, and I didn't write or make half of those. <laughs> and I think that's a, be- I do, I think it's a beautiful thing. It's like, we never in a million years would think that it would become what it became when it was so selfish and self-centered in the beginning, you know, and we kept it secret. We kept it. I mean, we walked around with the flies in our hands and or buried under our real cases. You know, it wasn't, we didn't share this with anybody. It was, the first one was actually stolen. No kidding. And that's where it did. It was stolen. And that's where Ed decided that we better take credit for it before someone else takes credit for it. Uh, Sorry, I sorry to interrupt there. Like stolen. How how does that happen? Like, how did did you like? Well, on the river. Yeah. On the river, Rod, um, Ed, or excuse me, Scott had a rod stolen in BC with his freaking boogle on it, bro. Wow. No kidding. <laughs> so needless to say, yeah, so he had a boogle. The dude stole the whole rod. And I don't know if it was for the boogle or sure. the fly because Scott was crushing it when he was out in the Queen Charlotte. Damn. I mean, crushing it. Yep. And so someone snatched the rod, the reel and the fly right off his boat on the river. Holy crap. And I had come back to my boat from fishing. We would park the boats and then go for walks, fish a whole run. And then, you know, the gadget or the sock specifically is where this happened. You would, you'd fish a piece of water and then you'd see another piece of water. And before you knew it, you were a mile and a half, two miles away from your boat, you know? And by the time I get back to my boat, the fly has actually been cut off my other rod setup. And I was like, Holy crap. No one, they didn't take the rod. They didn't steal that. No they kidding. took the fly and the fly had been literally the real case had been opened up. The fly had been taken off the crossbar and cut straight off right Dude. at the front end of the mono. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, look at this Ed. And he goes, yeah, I've seen that rod before. And I'm like, no, what's missing. <laughs> and, and and it was like, holy crap, someone stole the intruder. Wow. You know? And we were like, okay, we had an idea who it was because there were some people that kind of spied on what we were doing. Oh, really? You know, our name started to carry some weight and, yep. you know, they were wondering what was up with our success. And, you know, it really, it really did. It, there was a time when we first started doing the intruders that we had a secret weapon. Yeah. And, and, and we all felt that way. I mean, we knew we did. We knew we were onto something. As soon as we started using it in Alaska, 
we started catching kings on the swing and we started catching way bigger rainbows. No kidding. And, and it was, it was like, okay, this is real, you know? And that came from talking with my scientist buddies that are all biologists, professors up at Western and, you know, doing studies on uh, anadromous fish. And, you know, they all talked about what they ate and what they consumed. And, you know, we would thumb through the books and look at freaking, you know, saltwater flies and see things that were all big and wiggly and be inspired by that. And, mm-hmm. but then we were all still bound to this classic appearance that we love so much from our history as fly fishermen, steelhead fly fishermen. So it was, you know, it was, that is the spawn of that critter. That's so, it. That's it. And so yep. you knew, so that point when you knew this thing was going to be a, a game changer, what, what, what was, when was that point? Do, do you remember that exact point when you're like, okay, this intruder is going to change the game? Unfortunately, I don't remember that exact point, but yeah. what I do remember is I do remember situations like, okay, third or fourth trip to British Columbia, Ed and I are walking up opposite sides of the river and I would look across the river and Ed was hooked up. <laughs> I walked down river and every single possible fishy spot, I got a fish out. No kidding. And no kidding. And I mean, it was just like, it was almost like you could call it. It was so weird that when we entered a run that hadn't been fished by anybody else, and even if it had been, the numbers of fish I caught behind people on intruders was absurd. I mean, it was just, you started to feel bad. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, we can't do this, dude. Yeah, we can't do this anymore. We can't because those people would charge up and be like, what are you using? What are you doing? And then, then we, then we have to be dicks because we don't want to share them with anybody, you know? So it was like, it was a thing that it was, it was a really weird time, you know? And I would say that it took, it was probably maybe three years total from the invention of the first two, two stations to being absolutely certain that what we had created was this was a legit game changer and then you know things evolved in alaska too it made it made it possible to go up there and actually have a legitimate swing fishery for kings exactly you know and and people were using more two-handed rods and people were tying more intrudery looking flies you know the giant string leeches like mole leeches and stuff like that kind of were the very first part you know you know, camp flies that we were using because tying intruders was almost taboo. And most people made them way too damn big for any client to catch, you know? And so, you know, the evolution took a little while to get to the point where, you know, like I've landed on two and a half, three inch flies now, Mm -hmm. and they work exceptionally well. And, you know, I caught, I caught lots of steelhead on a, on an intruder, almost seven inches long, but here's the problem with that is not not only is it a nightmare to cast but it only appeals to so many fish and that two and a half three four inch fly it appeals to the larger um variety of them or majority of them for sure Mm -hmm. you know lots more dollies i mean we go out ed and i had this little competition we called dolly fest that was one of the I mean, one of the funnest parts of all the river swamping was Dolly Fest going out and just literally destroying Dolly numbers. And that's what it was all about was numbers. It wasn't about size or anything. I I carved this trophy out of a piece of soapstone and he and I would pass it back and forth living in the same house. Right. You know, (laughs) know, it just, and, and that, 
that also led us to a, a larger understanding of the fish themselves and where they sat and, you know, what they were like and when they first came in and, you know, the difference between like fish in the Skagit drainages and the Olympic Peninsula drainages, you learned there were these these vast differences between these two things, these two river drainages in the same state, you know, the where, where the fish held, the way they ate the fly, the way they moved up the river. I mean, it was all of that. The fly made that possible. So the guesswork was in the mystery was way less. You know, we were, we were really learning, you know, just exponentially every single time we fished as a group, there was this huge, massive learned, you know, we'd go up to the Maurice section, Mm -hmm. fish a little intruder. And by the end of the day, you know, between me, Scott and Ed, the numbers were just ridiculous, you know, compared to our old days of doing this. I mean, phew. So in the, so in that good day, you're out there with the intruder things or you're just rocking it. What What is a good day on the river up there on the Maurice or up on the I mean, it, morning fish. I mean, morning fish. I remember there was a morning where between Ed and I, there was, I know that I hooked and landed probably six and I lost like 12. Wow. And Ed landed every single thing he caught. And Scott, Scott would leave, Scott would leave before sunup pretty much every day. And there were some days we'd fish together, but most days that dude was on foot just terminating. Yeah. And he would come back after dark and his toes would be sticking out of his Danner boots, <laughs> all bloody and hammered. And that dude, he landed 15 fish, you know, and we would, we would talk about them, you know, we'd talk about every single one of them. And, you know, there was always a point where with Ed and I and Scott even, cause Scott, you almost, you know, we jokingly called him the terminator like. <coughs> you know, too much was never enough for that guy. But it's not true because there was a point where we were like, okay, this is, you know, we became way more laid back and way more focused on the way that we fished. And if we went out at first light, Ed and I would crash up in the trees just up beyond the bar and we'd sleep for most of the day or we'd go back to camp and, you know, talk shit and tie more flies and take a big long nap and then go out for the evening session. It really, it really mellowed out our pursuit and, and our, and it really, it put a sharp, sharp point on our focus and intention, you know? And so it was, you know, it was, it, it kind of, it didn't make it easy, but it made it more understood. And, and what mellowed you out? You're saying, uh, the, the, fl- just the, the intruder or what, what mellowed you guys out there? The confidence, yeah, the, confidence the confidence behind it. <clears throat> the confidence behind it is what really took the intensity out of it. And make no mistake, we still fished really hard and wanted to see if we could catch more fish in more places, more ways. But the level of confidence that you had when you flipped that thing into the water was, it was crazy talk. You know, we all knew, like I said, we knew that we had something. We literally had a secret weapon. It was like, I would watch guys fish down through a run and watch them walk away. And then I would step into the top end of that run and inevitably something would come from there. You know, and it, whether it was me or Ed or Scott, you knew it, you knew it damn well. You were just like, okay, the fish that didn't like what they offered is definitely going to eat what we do. You know what I mean? And, and it just turned into that, you know, and then eventually once it became that and everybody was fishing two handers, it, it really changed the trajectory of the whole thing, you know, but it was, it was also very inspiring and satisfying to see that, you know, to know that, you know, that our little tiny, we were, we were called the testosterone gang (laughs) because of how, you know, intense we were about it by all our peers. And a lot of our peers believe that steelheading was a badge of honor. 
And, you know, it, it only took, it wasn't until later in life that I realized that this was some, this was a form and an idea that had to be shared and it had to be shared very, you know, intensely and coming from us. So everybody who was, had been bitten, like we had been bitten, we could change that learning curve and minimize that mystery a little bit, you know, because the pursuit is a big part of that for everybody. We didn't want to take it away. We just wanted them to be more confident in their pursuits, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. How yeah. did, so, so when did the, uh, I'm not even sure on the OPST, the, the Skagit, that brand, um, it seems like that came out a little later and you, weren't you involved early oh, on in that? Absolutely. Yeah. Ed and I started the company and, you know, I was the very first person that they brought on board after I met the partners and it, uh, you know, Ed and I, it was, it was a vision and opportunity to create all this stuff we had in our heads and potentially, I mean, honestly, for me, it really was more about getting Ed paid for the contributions overall into the industry Mm -hmm. and his true understanding of what we were doing. You know, because like the compact, the ultra compact heads that came out of OPST, those were things that we'd been building for years. And, and the idea behind them, you know, these, these hydrometer, um, low length lines, Mm -hmm. they create this surface tension on the water. And when you combine that with the tip, that's how the whole thing was thought of as the entire casting package, this short head. And then the tip section was your total casting package. And that whole thing, if it sat really low in the water, it created free load. And that free load meant that you could fish these much more compact units and make the rod, you know, load and recover in a really high performance way. And it would still work extremely well under the trees and stuff like that. So that was the idea behind that. And it was, it was an opportunity to create this, this line that the world just didn't know they wanted. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. there were so many people that were, you know, I get it. There's a lot of people that there's a lot of followers and then yeah. there's a lot of, there's a very small amount of people that are actual creators. And so for us, it wasn't, it was more, like I said before, it was about, it was about going, look at this and look at how much easier this is for you. It's like, as a guide, I've taken 10 and 15 year old kids who have never touched a two hander stuck a commando in their hands with one of my renegade rods and that kid is fishing by end of morning exactly you know what i mean and that that to me that carries more weight than all the fish i ever caught you know it's just like look at this this kid is bit and he's loving it and he's actually doing it well you know and it's not it's not a badge of honor it's a you know it's a gift if you get to go out to the river and swing flies well, good on you, mm-hmm. you know, because you're, you're bit by something that is freaking beautiful in a beautiful place and the outcome matters to everybody differently, but it really matters, you know, yeah. and whether you catch something or not, it's, there's still the outcome. You spent a beautiful day on the river and hopefully you learned something and evolved a little bit, you know? Totally. Totally. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I, I was thinking the, uh, the example of you guys developing that line, you know, giving the people what they want or what they didn't know they want. I, I think of the Ford, right? Henry Ford example. Right. What's the old code? If, uh, if he would have listened to the people, we'd still be driving buggies and, and wagons. You know, he, he basically had this idea that nobody thought would, would even, right? I mean, he just came up with this thing. Same thing with Apple. I mean, nobody thought the right. I, iPhone was going to be this thing, but Jobs, 
knew it. He, he had yep. this idea and yeah, you guys, exactly. you guys are kind of the same. I mean, you had this thing and you knew it because it was working and, and it's kind of a similar deal. I mean, what, and I think of, uh, you know, Joe, uh, Joseph Rosano was on recently. He was talking about the history, the evolution of steelhead fly design. And, and I asked right him, and I asked him in that interview, I said, I said, what is, you know, the mo- most important, you know, in steelhead fly design over all the years. Right. And he, he studied it all. And he said, he said the intruder. You know, he said oh, it yeah. was the number one thing. So when yeah. you look back at it, other than the intruder, you know, what other major steelhead fly design do you see back in history? I'm not sure if you're a steel or a history buff, but what, what would you look at? I would still say the intruder. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that people were dabbling. People were dabbling. People were trying things and then giving up on them. And, and you know, there were guys like, okay, Bob Aid, the big marabou spiders, that that was the beginning of an idea with the wrong material. Mm. You know what I mean? Marabou is just this destructive yeah. material. And yeah, it looks right? great in the water one time. Yeah, exactly. The popsicles and John Farrar, those guys were fishing these really fishy flies. Granted, one fish would eat them and the thing would just be, you know, dropping pieces all over the place. But it was, and that was the thing about the ostrich is the ostrich for us, we realized its durability. And so that became the fly you know, that became the material to use for that fly specifically, you know, the turkey flanks and all that stuff. That was also part of the game, but it was just about the way those things looked. That was a buggy feature that couldn't be ignored, you know, because we were still very buggy in our heads, right? Everything had to be buggy. (laughs) And so now I hardly ever use it, you know, because I'm, and I do, I do for my own flies and my composite loops. I, I throw some turkey flats and flank feathers and stuff in there, but I don't really for production stuff or guide flies, things like that. But it, I would have to say the intruder, the mm-hmm. intruder was the effect of that fly was literally worldwide in a way that I couldn't even explain as a guide. I got to see it ever evolve every single year and watch these dudes come from Europe and Great Britain with intruders tied on tubes or on shanks, the classic style. And I was just like, I can't believe this, you know? And then I guided people on the OP much later in my career after the intruder was worldwide and guys were asking me the same questions you're asking me. Yep. You know what I mean? It was yep. just like, how did this happen? Why <laughs> did this happen? Well, what are you using? Why are you using this <laughs> stuff? You know? And it was just like, and all they, they, it was just curiosity. They needed to know more, you know? And so for me, it, it just opened up this Pandora's box of creativity after a time that there was a lot of rules in fly tying. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. There were all these rules and things that you had to have. The tinsel had to be like this and it had to be done this way or it's not this pattern. Right. And, you know, the fish don't give a and no. I'm out there for the fish. I'm not out there for you to like what I do. I'm out there to take all this in and I'm out there to make contact with these beautiful creatures, you know? And so that's where that was all at. And the effect that the intruder had, once the intruder became known was it was exponential and it was freaking mind boggling to us, you know? And we were like, there it is. We did do something good. (laughs) You know, there was something super good here and everybody knows about it. So let's just, you know, let's just keep it going and let them all wallow in it, you know? And, and like I said, there's, I can't that, I mean, the proudest days for me are like thumbing through my Instagram feed and seeing the creations that these guys make. And it's just like that, that influencing people that way, whether they know it or not, it makes me super freaking happy. 
That's, you know, cool. I, I'm, I'm always a little bit annoyed when someone calls my dirty hoe, I've been sitting down tying and they'll walk up and they'll go, that's a nice intruder. And I'm like, no, man, yep. no, that is not, <laughs> it's a, you know, that's not an intruder. That's a dirty hoe, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. and it's, it does a different thing, a different way. And it's an evolution of an idea, you know, it's another platform and yeah. I don't, you know, none of them are patterns, do whatever you want on the platforms, but try to be at least slightly you know, respectful to the platform and the idea and the name, you know, yeah. you can do whatever you want inside of that. But the, those three things were, there was a lot of heart and soul by a handful of dudes, a gang, a tribe, if you will, that really put their lives and their thinking and, you know, everything they had into those ideas. So that, that's, yeah. you know, that's a big thing to me. The uh, the dirty hill. Can you just describe briefly to somebody who maybe hasn't seen that fly how that platform is? All different? it is, yeah. all it is, is a a solid um, a front shoulder that I started doing the composite hackles or you know the the composite loops on because the the, the intruder platforms it, to this day they still take me close to twenty minutes to tie the real deal and when I started tying the the dirty hoe that was that was after fishing for years and years with Ed and Ed fishing a very simplified, um, a pork rind, a very simplified string leech version that I gave him a lot of crap about because Ed is one of the most gifted fly tires you'll ever meet mm. in your whole life. I mean, if you see the guy spin deer hair, you're just like, what the hell dude, <laughs> you know? And, and this was like up in Alaska when we'd tie wogs and stuff out of exclusively deer hair and edge shaving them with a face shaver and a razor blade instead of using scissors, yep. like using rough cut, just cut these things down quickly and then finish them with a face shaver and a razor blade. <laughs> it was just, it was ridiculous. And, you know, Ed would have a whole box of wogs just poof right off the bat, you know? Yep. And so I gave him a lot of crap about that, that silly little string leech that caught everything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was skinny. It appealed to the fish in size. But, I mean, he would fish some of these things were six, seven inches long. Wow. And he caught everything that was in the river. And I was just like, okay. You know, and I, I had always had a love for string leeches, but they were always way too heavy. And originally, when I first started tying the dirty hose, they were a regular quarter-inch strip split with a razor blade. So I could minimize the volumes. Right. right. And then once... You know, once Senyo came out with the freaking, you know, the micro strips, mm -hmm. I was all over those things. And Pine Squirrel, absolutely love Pine Squirrel, Mink, all those really thin, durable strips. Um, rabbit hair strip, mm -hmm. I think there's very few things in the world as wiggly as a rabbit hair strip. Yeah. And so, you know, the twisted hitch, actually rigging the hook or attaching the hook to in a removable, replaceable manner to the rabbit strip really kind of made that platform. And, and it, it carried the swing weight of the hook, the way that it swung in very current speeds across the column of water, everything about that fly and its castability. I could hand it to an absolute beginner and they could cast that fly. You know, it's like a bullet. It's a bullet flying through the air. It's a bullet sinking in the mm. column and they swing really easy. They rise and sink very predictably which was a really big deal to me because the intruder with the dumbbell eyes, that fly continually dug in. It yep. just dug in and dug in and dug in and being able to drive that fly over the big rocks without jamming it down in the transition was, was pretty difficult, you know, and you would end up kind of 
compromising your penetration or where you were how you're how you're fishing the fly it would just get jammed down inside of the transition between the substrate and these big boulders All right. but the dirty hoe was something yeah, absolutely it was something that would drive you just a little bit of tension on the fly line and you would drive it over the boulder huh. because the fly being tied with a with a cone it would actually start to lift very nicely and it would rise right up over it and as soon as i drop my rod tip back in it'd sink right back in you know the the head would drop in and it'd sink like a bullet and get back into the zone where the dirt you know the intruder the dumbbell eyes they'll rise and fall a little bit but once that fly is dug in trying to get a dumbbell eye to rise up and rise up rapidly or in a controlled fashion is almost impossible you know Mm -hmm. it's very very different and once i started guiding i really started to study side-by-side case study like a guy fishing a dirty hoe a dude fishing intruder walking the high bank watching these dudes fish down through these boulder gardens and like keep track of how many times the dude with the intruder was snagged Mm -hmm. and of course these guys had to be pretty equal in ability for that to have any any merit at all but once i got those those combinations i would always do these little case studies and you know, learn as much as I could from that and watching the way they swam and so on and so forth, you know, and eventually the dirty hoe became literally the driving force behind all my time. Nice, nice, nice. And, uh, I had a, a question, uh, Jacob uh, Bargo from the Facebook group had a, a question about, um, kind of flight choice and different conditions. And he was asking, you know, that's one thing, I guess, how, how do you change depending on conditions? And the other part of that was, do you, do you swing it uh, butt or broadside on the swing? Straight up, no question, always broadside. I call it controlled. It's always a controlled broadside, and it's something that's very, very achievable with the small line, the shorter line systems. I'm able to, like I do this tip-out technique when she, once the fly is on the inside where most guys are leading with the rod and the fly has lost all of its animation. It's just literally sinking to the bottom and you're dragging the thing to the inside to try to cover the inside lies. Well, what I do is I take the rod tip and once, once I've started to lose my forward momentum inward towards the beach, I drop the rod tip in the water and start pushing it out towards the middle of the river. And that creates a sail. The wind is the river. Your line is the sail. And that's what I've always told my clients. And so what you want to do is sail your fly across the column in a controlled fashion from where it lands to where I say it's done. And where I say it's done is where the fish is going to actually lay. You know, and those are, the fish sit on the inside way further. In most cases, we're walking right through where they want to be. And so I want to fish all that first exceptionally well. And so the tip out technique is what allows me to do that. So when conditions, as far as fly choice on conditions, I'm always fishing broadside. It's controlled. It may not be hard, hard, full broadside, but the fly is always in a sideways animated condition. And then as far as fly choice and conditions, that really has to do with your individual confidence, what you feel good about fishing. But what I look at now is more as much as anything else is how the fly, the presence of the fly in the conditions and in the column. Like, you know, guys talk about dark day, dark fly. And I have never been onto that because it's tribal knowledge. And I have this problem with tribal knowledge because it's, I've seen it happen. I mean, I've, I've seen guys on the river one day start to talk about something. And then next year at the lodge, guys are talking about it like it's some kind of rule. Right. You know what I mean? And it's mm-hmm. just like, no, 
that's not what it is. I mean, I'll be honest. One of my favorite, favorite flies of all time is white and it always will be. And it comes from watching old timers fish white flies in completely blown out conditions and railing on dollies and steelhead. And I started going, what the hell is going on here? And that also goes back to my, my love for, you know, UV materials, because this ultraviolet, the most reflective thing in the column is white. And it doesn't matter how dirty it is. The most present color is white. And it doesn't matter how dirty it is. The, a black fly. Yeah. It's present. It's opaque. You know, it's, it's got this in dirty water. Yeah. They can see that, but what's the most reflective thing we can fish white. (laughs) And so when you put a white fly in any condition, that fly is illuminated and they're completely aware. And here's the other side of it. It's that this is where the big really really came into play is vision was less of a factor than the lateral line. Because as conditions change for those creatures and because of the way their eyes are set, they need, they use, they rely on their lateral lines, their pickup of vibration and um, just the movement of water as much as they do their ability to see it. You know, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So being, a, being able to like fish something across the column that is moving water, that is wiggling like crazy, that is animated. Once they actually, they feel it before they see it. And once they see it, they want to eat it. And that's where I've always, I've been super hyper-focused on that ever since the, you know, the intruder became, you know, a known Mm -hmm. pattern that we knew that it worked. And then the evolution of all these other ideas and platforms, they all came from that, you know? So it's in, in conditions there is possible it is possible to fish too big and too clear conditions, of course, you know, and it's, and it's possible to fish too bright in those conditions. But, you know, I've seen the contrary so many times, like, you know, the the Bogusheel river in the summertime out on the Olympic peninsula, the thing is gin clear. I mean, it's literally gin clear. And we fish down through this lie with these nice, beautiful little intruders and little white summer intruders that I called them. And they were just, you know, those are coastal fish that are six, eight miles from the, from the salt. They just rode in on the tide. These things are gamers, right? And some dude finds this huge orange intruder and decides to fish it. And I'd fish through the run. A couple other guys had fished through the run. And then I hear woohoo behind Mm -hmm. me. Now that fish could have just moved in or nothing. We had appeal to him. And this giant orange fly, this thing looked like a fire truck rolling down the <laughs> river. I mean, it was so out of place. It was unreal. Nice. I mean, it was just offensive. You'd see it land and you'd see the refraction of that fly all the way across the column. And the fish ate it. So it's, you know, it's really, is it, to answer your question, those things are really all about your confidence. You know, what, what you believe in, you know, and what you believe in, what you have confidence in, what in your box produces for you, you know, but you know, there, there are no rules. That's the best part of it. Right. So try everything, give it all a go, you know, and, and, and walk your own path, you know? That's great. Yeah. I was just thinking back again to that George conversation. I asked him what uh, one of his fly boxes looked like. And I think he, he was talking about how how he had a lot of reds in it and uh, we kind of joked about it. But if we look at your fly box right now for winter steelhead, does it, what what does it look like? Does it have a color? It has a huge variety. 
And, and it, that's, and that's because I guide people that have zero confidence in anything unless it's black and blue. And when I fish black and blue, it'll be gin clear. And I'll fish black and blue in slightly off-colored water, but I lean way more towards it when it's gin clear. And that's only because of my personal experience and success fishing that fly in gin clear water, right? So that's where it goes back to that confidence thing. But it, mine is a variety of colors. And me personally, it's, it's very natural tones and lots and lots of white. Variations of white and orange, white and olive, white and bright orange, um, red, you know, so, but it's, it, and you'd probably be like, if I open my guide box, it's all dirty hose and ultra squids because they are super client friendly as far as casting and their ability to hook the fish properly and the higher odds of them landing them, you know, because the thing about the intruder was, is that unless it was built specifically old school style where the hook popped loose, you lost a lot of fish on that fly. If it's tied with wire, it might as well just be this giant lever. You know, I can't even count how many fish I watch jump and spit that fly out. You know, big dumbbell eyes on the front. It's, you know, it's it's like a hammer swing. You know, it's just a lot of leverage. <laughs> so it was, you know, you had to, I'm trying to up this, you know, up this productivity level. And that's where a lot of that evolution came from. That's it. That's it. Cool. Well, as we're, uh, you know, uh, try to wrap this thing up here pretty quick, I just, you know, I want to touch on a little bit. You have, uh, you, you know, you're selling some rods and you have some stuff going. Can you just talk a little bit about how you, you know, the transition from, and I'm not sure if you're still guiding now, but transition from when you're at the OPST to now with the comp- the company you have going. Can you talk a little bit about what you have going these days? Um, okay. Yeah. Good question. The, um, the, that evolution was a matter of when I left that company and I left that company for just, you know, differences in professionalism and direction. And, you know, Ed, Ed's participation, it's not like he's sitting at a desk inside that company. Ed's, Ed's in the Great Lakes taking care of his mom. You know, he was in Wisconsin. And for me, I wanted Ed to get paid. And that was my whole goal in that situation. And I just wanted to truly take our ideas and bring them to market (coughs) and make as much money as we could to get Ed paid. And potentially I could actually have a job doing something, providing, you know, my ideas and the things I love to the masses. Well, that didn't work out. And it was really unfortunate to me. It was, I gave my heart and soul to that. I tried everything then within my quiver to make myself fit within that picture that the owners wanted and you know the business partners that they wanted and so i bailed out and once i bailed out i just believed with all my heart that you know the reality of the fishing industry was pretty cutthroat there's you know there's there's a lot of that's a great idea let's steal that you know so i didn't i didn't want to be part of that that's not who i am and doug brutico approached me you know i i reached out to my friend um, Jeff Pierway and said, Hey dude, let's build a rod. And Jeff reached out to Doug and then Doug reached out to me and Doug is, Doug is, I mean, Doug brought my faith back. You know, I believe in people again. I believe in how good people can be. <laughs> Doug is such a legit human being. Um, I'm proud to be part of the Aquafly brand. And I'm also, he's the only reason that all these ideas of mine have come to fruition for the masses 
because you know he he makes sure that they he does all the legwork i design i do the you know i come up with the concepts the ideas and doug does all the legwork and he invests in you know does all that stuff mm-hmm. to make that stuff come true and so Doug Brudico took my idea that I was hoping for OPST and made it a reality, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the rods that I was designing with Pureway, <clears throat> I wanted to be able to create this ultimate fishing tool lineup that literally was a casting partner, not something that you had to go out and buy a line and then be educated by the people who designed it to be able to use it. It was something that was your casting partner. They loaded easy and they had a fast recovery and they were in this ideal length and weight for the purpose, you know, because I don't go to the Grand Ron with a 15 foot five weight, no, you know, or even a 12 foot five weight. I go there with a short five weight. And when I go to the Grand Ron now, I fish my six Hmm. because my six is the perfect rod for that pursuit. All those fish, fish fit within that that rod's abilities and all the casting distances that I fish are also within that, you know, I've never been a caster baiter for lack of a better word. Mm. If it's on the other side of the river, we'll go fish that next fish. What's in front of you. Well, and that's just the way I looked at it. I outgrew that casting far thing a very long time ago. And the efficiencies of angling were much more important than how far I could cast, you know, and, and, but I, I admire the dudes that can huck mega. I really do always have. And I always will. I never look down on them. That's their prerogative. And that's the beautiful thing about our pursuit. It's all about you. Mm-hmm. You know, you be you and you have a great time. But if you sit in my boat as a guide and, and no, I'm not guiding anymore. I retired a few years ago in a pursuit of trying to, the, it had become very competitive here in the winter time. And to the point where a lot of the people that most of my client were 90%, they were 90% returns and I didn't have to advertise at all. And I wasn't able to give these people the experience they were paying me for. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it, it turned into a thing where I would much rather just fish for myself and not take their money. And I know that all of these people have learned enough from me that they're more than self capable. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You know, I know that every single person who sat in my boat, except for a very small percentage over and over, over the years are, they can go out by themselves and be successful anglers, you know, and, and it really boiled down to a lot of the people that came back. We just wanted to spend time together and they became really good friends of mine. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, that was, that was that part. And coming back to, you know, the, the transition between OPST and Jerry French fly fishing, the, you know, Doug was a big fan and a believer in what I was doing. And so, you know, he took it upon himself to make a platform for me to do what I do. And that's what Jerry French fly fishing is. It's, there's no gimmicks. They're just mm-hmm. real products that I use. He let me design a new fly or um, a new hook. He let me design new shanks. Um, my shanks are the shanks that I want to tie on. It's not just a shank and they're all beautiful. You know, the, the upturned eyes, all of the returned eye hooks are tapered. They're a tapered shank. So you can tie a beautiful intruder with a small head. It's not going to cut your thread and it is a beautiful hook. And the round eye hooks are all for your bead applications, you know, up and down the gamut from trout size all the way up to mega cones, you know, so they're all there in a variety of lengths. 
the ultra rig or for those real discerning clients, the real discerning people who have had a lot of really bad experiences with wire and they, they want to fish a rigid hook rigging, rigid yet flexible hook rigging that is not going to break and it will work the same every single time. If you use it right or do it right, it's going to be, you're going to end up with this beautiful hook right in the corner of the mouth and that, and you're not going to lose them. The fly has, you know, that has the same pliability as it would if it had just a Dacron loop back there, you know, and the combination of the Dacron and the very flexible tubing over the top created this ideal condition of a rigid application with all the flexibility you would ever want once you hook a fish, you know, and it's not going to break. I mean, I can't even count how many hooks I've lost on that, on a wire application. So <clears throat> it was something in my book that had to be changed. And so, you know, Doug doing all the work and I get in a royalty, che- a royalty check and, you know, we talk a lot on the phone and, you know, we're constantly, you know, blah, blah, but he's, he's been incredibly good to me and made this really easy for me to do. And that's really what I was looking for. And so, you know, I, every day I sing his praises and I, you know, I work very hard for that guy. So that's cool. No, it sounds like uh, amazing. And I think, uh, yeah, we ran into each other just briefly, uh, at IFTD, but, um, you know, I've, I've been seeing your name out there and stuff. And obviously, you know, your name is a, a big name. It, you know, I could, I could ask this next question to you just as easy, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of point it towards Ed because Ed is a pretty, uh, it seems like a hard guy. He's a pretty quiet guy, you know, um, yeah. what do you think, yeah. you know, what do you think people get wrong about Ed? There, there might be this thinking that Ed is arrogant. Ed is one of the most generous, caring human beings I've ever met in my life. It's just a matter of, and it goes for me too. I have a lot of acquaintances in life and a very small core group of friends. And I'm that, that's who he is too. Ed is, Ed is, he doesn't have an arrogant bone in his body. He's incredibly confident. He's incredibly humble and, and, and incredibly skilled and intelligent. I mean, I'm, I'm all constantly blown away by the things that'll tell me. And I'm just like, how in the hell do you know that? You know, and he'll tell me when I was in the Navy, I studied it. I'm just like, dude, that is so damn cool. You know, and it was just, he, he, his influence, once you get to know Ed, his influence and his true understanding of so many things is really kind of mind boggling. I don't, there's in my lifetime, if I tried as hard as I could, I couldn't hold a candle to the type of person and how much he knows, you know what I mean? His experience and the way he sees things, Ed, like Ed took notes of stuff. Ed was committed to a concept like the whole ultra short line concept that that is all Ed. Now my understanding of it is, is as I would say as in depth as his, but his, the, he was literally the driving force behind that. He could see before it even was a thing, what it was and what, how capable it was. And so as we moved into the shorter rod world, Ed never fished anything over 13 feet. Ed was fishing shorter and shorter rods all the time. I mean, I wouldn't say he fished anything over 12 feet. He was fishing shorter and shorter rods all the time, building a new line almost every single night. He would, we'd come home and he would sit down and make some adjustment on a fly line or build an entirely new one. 
and then go out to the river the next day and fish that thing and be like, dude, cast this. And you'd just be like, what? You know, this is so easy. It's ridiculous, you know? Nice. And he was like, yeah, but look how, look at the line speed and the tightness of the loop and, you know, all that stuff. It would all just, you know, exponentially build up. And his commitment to that idea was, was what really made me commit to the idea as well. You know, it was obvious that it was, cool. that was the way to go. You know, the yeah, shorter, yeah. shorter rods, ultra short line systems, and the whole outcome was a much more fishable package that was easy for, you know, for the end game. That's it. And it was super easy to teach, you that's know, exactly. really easy to teach. Exactly. I think that's yep. the biggest thing. I think that's what you guys were a part of, what you did, you know, and you already said it, but that was one of the biggest thing. It, it took steelhead fishing because I remember it. I, I was always a single hand caster and you know, it, it was just, sometimes it was a struggle and you guys made you, just like you said, you, you can take that kid and within an hour or whatever, he can be catching steelhead. And, and I mean, that's as big as Absolutely. anything. That's what you guys did. You, you made it for the, almost you made steelhead fishing for the masses pretty much. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've heard people say you could never guide people into steelhead without the Skagit concepts. You know what I mean? You just, you couldn't do it. And, but you could, but it would take a, a much larger learning curve, you know, for sure. It's like, you know, it's, it, it those, and it, it started as a super selfish pursuit and then became entirely by the people for the people. You know what I mean? It's, and, and that's a beautiful thing. It really is. And it, and I can't, like I said, I can't be prouder than I am to see, you know, I just got an email from a guy who is his entire quiver are all renegade rods and it's because that dude's drank the kool-aid you know he's and he he gets to go out and every 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 place he uses those rods whether he's fishing for kings on the skeena or in alaska he my renegade is working for him you know and he knows that and feels that and appreciates that it it fights fish really good because of the flex of the rod i mean it just goes on and on that dude built he drank the kool-aid and he just, he just wanted to, he just his the last email was like, dude, I need a five weight. And I'm thinking about your four or your five. And I'm like, my five weight, you want my five weight for what you're, what you're describing. That is the rod, the length, the weight of the rod. If you, you, you know, if we ever get around to making a legitimate fighting handle or a two handed handle for that thing, which I believe Doug is trying to do or was trying to do before this craziness hit, <clears throat> the the handles on my single-handed rods are all removable and if and i i only cast those rods i cast them single hand style because they're a single-handed rod and i can cast as far as i want and casting them with the two hand is just not biomechanically efficient so it's like i don't i'm not concerned with casting it with two hands but there are other people that do and so we're trying to make a three inch butt for that rod and that way guys can screw out the little fighting butt and literally put in a second handle on the bottom, you know, so they can cast those rods two-handed style, you know, and, and when I do cast them two-handed style, I just call it a two finger butt and I use two fingers on them because it, it doesn't take a whole lot of bottom hand to no. make that thing huck, you know, right, yeah, so exactly. that's where I'm at with that. Yeah, that's but primarily it. it's, you know, it's all single hand gadget stuff. That's it. That's it. Um, 
Well, one one last uh, big one for you here, uh, Jerry. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I th- it sounds like you're maybe in your mid fifties now, somewhere in that range, as far as uh, yeah, I'm fifty five. Fifty five, yeah, perfect. Um, so when you look yep. back at at your twenty five year old self, and I'm not sure where you're at in this evolution of of everything here, but um, would you have any words of advice for that twenty uh, twenty five year old kid back back in the day, knowing what you know now? Yeah, I would be like, keep your mouth shut. Oh, really? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I would. I would be I would be way more I would probably be more secretive in the sense that there's probably more we could have learned and shared later, but I've I've always been very like people, okay. People would always say tell us how you really feel, Jerry. That's that was what was known about me. I've always been the kind of person that if I had a problem with you, you absolutely knew about it. And I was more than happy to attack you and tell you how I actually felt. And that was, that's a product of where I come from, the way I was brought up and so on. But the, and then a lot of negative stuff have, has evolved from me being that way. Okay. So I would just be more like, just be, keep it to yourself and be, keep your mouth shut. Cause I've always been super humble and I've always been generous. And so it was, you know, I didn't, I wasn't arrogant about my shit. I just was very vocal about it. And so, and, you know, and it sometimes could be violent. It depended on the scenario, but it, the bottom line was, is it would just be, keep my mouth shut and just be quiet. You know what I mean? Just carry quiet confidence instead of being who I was when I was 25, you know, I was, but when I was 25, I was very, very hyper-focused on fishing. And within the fishing world is where I existed. Um, I rubbed shoulders with people, you know, on the lateral parts of the world, you know, that I, you know, I had opinions about and things I said and things I wish I didn't say. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's where I'd be. It would just be, you know, be quiet and do more listening, less talking. (laughs) How would you, this is kind of a big question. We probably can't dig all into it, you know, but you, you know, you're an industry, you've been in the industry, the inside. I mean, what, what would you change about the industry? You know, the fly fishing industry. I mean, it sounds like there's some good and bad, of course, there's lots of great people and stuff, but anything come to mind that you would? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so many great people and, but it, you know, that's, that's a really, really hard question. I mean, I could, I would probably need a lot more time than we have to be able to give you a legitimate answer, but it, the evolution of, okay. I like to tell my clients that for 30 years, we've been hyper-focused on the same thing and the industry is coming up with something new for you to buy every year. Right. And that, that's really how I feel about that. It's like, I'm not, I don't have anything negative to say about the industry and the people in the industry because most of these people are my friends, (laughs) you know, and they evolved in that direction. And, you know, there's guys that are the high ends of things. And it's like, you know, I feel like I kind of feel like as I've gotten older, I've been excluded from things because of the whole social media thing and how much I'm involved in it. But the reality of it is I'm still as innovative and creative as anybody you know, and I, and I know that because I'm applying myself to it, you know, and I, and I spend times with the younger generation and everybody's feeding off of everybody else. They're not innovating. They're just copying, you know? And so it's like, and a lot of it's not beneficial. I mean, it's, it's really not. 
a lot of it is just it's like trendy that just goes from year to year and disappears you know so it's like you know just some more reality some more hyper focus on really helping the people and not so much helping yourself you know if i had to really put a point on it you know i've been i've been so hyper focused on in my latter years once i realized what we had to share as much as I could and to minimize the learning curve and mystery for those that came to me for help and anybody that was interested, you know, and then I think that that's where that's the beauty of what we do. And I, I really hope that, you know, the, my willingness and my givingness would translate into loyalty and following, mm -hmm. you know, but that's not really how it works. It doesn't. And so I'm okay with that. Yeah, I really am. I'm okay with that. And if you climb on board, if you drink the Kool-Aid, then we're in the same tribe, you know, and we speak the same speak and we're, you know, we're getting along and there's a lot of people in this world and that are just trying to sell you something and don't have an original thought to save their lives. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's like, that's where I'm at. And, and I'm happy being that guy that is, I mean, if we were better businessmen, we would run this industry. We're totally. If we were better businessmen, but we're not. We're fishermen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're innovators. Yeah. That's where it came from. I mean, that's why Doug makes all the decisions about things. Yeah. You don't ask me where's the better place to sell stuff. No. I don't. I've never put any thought to any of that. But I'll I'll talk about fly concepts and hook angle designs and you know rod lengths and all that stuff all day long. But don't ask me anything about business. Nope. <laughs> you know, nope. I mean, I'd own a lodge in Alaska and I'd, I'd be really worried about my summer season right now, but I'd be stoked that I owned a lodge in Alaska. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. So, <clears throat> but it's just the way it goes. And I'm super happy to be here and make no mistake. Yeah. yeah so. No, no. And that, and that, that's been reinforced by other guests we've had on this show, you know, when we've talked about that before, I think, um, I just think back to one, I think echo, um, uh, I can't remember it's, we've had a couple of echo, you know, conversations, but I think they talked about that, you know, where they don't necessarily make a new rod every single year, you know, they kind of have their line and, right. and they're sticking with it and there's yep. no reason to come out with a brand new rod every year. So I think, yeah, that's been reinforced for sure. So I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, you know, yeah. you, you have concepts you believe in and you need to push those concepts, you know, yeah, that's it. <clears throat> that's it. <clears throat> Well, Jerry, we're, we're, uh, we've, uh, definitely had a, uh, we pushed it here on time. I, we've covered some stuff, awesome. le left some stuff on the table, awesome. I'm sure. But, um, Hey, in the next, uh, you know, six to 12 months, anything you want to know coming up with, I mean, obviously we got this craziness with the lockdown, but after that, anything with your, your company, you want to give us a heads up or anything you have going personally? Well, if anybody's, you know, what I would like to bring up is if it actually comes to fruition, I'm going to be hosting trips for, um, Troy Detman. No, nice. The Grand Ronde Angler oh, on the Grand Ronde River. Yeah. And if you want to come and, you know, I'll, I'll share everything I can with you. And if you want to float one of the most beautiful river valleys yeah. on the planet, yes. I mean, <laughs> it's like, I mean, there's wildlife everywhere and super good conversation and it's going to be amazing food and awesome, you know, and Troy is a glorious human being. So yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd push that. And if, you know, if you want to just, Go to Troy's website, the Grand Ron Angler, and uh -huh. sign up for my week. And right on. I'll, I'll, we'll have a great, great time. I promise. Right on, so, man. Yeah, that, that's and it amazing. Was super great to talk to you, man. Yeah, I it's really been, it's, it's it. been fun, Jerry. Hey, I just wanted before I let you go, get out of here. Just want to, you know, thank you. Obviously, uh, you know, you've in, you've influenced me, and you know, like to so many people out there. So, um, 
you know, I think that, like you said, in the industry, that the fact that you've got all these new people into fly fishing, I just think it's such a good thing because, you know, into steelhead, right? Because that one person yeah. that caught their first steelhead because they used an intruder and a shorter rod, you know what I mean? That person is yep. going to give back to, to, you know, steelhead for years and years to come. So yeah, I just want to thank you for everything you've done. My pleasure, man. Absolutely. So there you go. If you want to find all the links and all the show notes we uh, covered today, go to wetflyswing.com slash 139. A reminder on the new podcast uh, that's out now, outdoorsonline.co, the marketing podcast to help uh, elevate your outdoor business online. It'd be great to have you over there to check out if you haven't uh, had a listen yet. Thanks again today for stopping by. Uh, Looking forward to catching up soon. Hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.